How are we all today? It's good to be back. I was here about four years ago for an MLK teaching, and at that one, uh, we did. We were up here on stage and we cut the gun in half, but I didn't get through it because I nearly caught my pants on fire. So we're not going to do that today. But instead, uh, there's going to be a live feed up here soon. Uh, we've got some uh, blacksmiths out there. Jim Curry and Shane are working on a uh, gun barrel that's going to be turned into a garden tool. I want to. To, yeah, you can clap for that. <clears throat> a lot like uh, Lane, who you're going to hear from soon, Raw Tools started after the Sandy Hook massacre. It's something that is inspired by the, the scriptures in Micah and Isaiah to turn swords into plowshares and study war no more. And then Micah ends it with one of my favorite parts about sitting under a vine and fig tree in fear of no other. And so our mission is to disarm hearts and forge peace. Um, Shane and I are in the middle of a 37-city book tour, and this is stop number 24 on that. We're going from the day after Ash Wednesday all the way to Maundy Thursday, so it's a great time to be giving up guns for Lent and turning them into garden tools. Um, we have, yeah, amen to that. We have three focuses at Raw Tools. One is to turn guns into garden tools, but use that as a way to introduce people to nonviolent conflict mediation skills, especially restorative justice. Raw Tools does a lot of its work through the, the lens of restorative justice. The second is the second part of that verse where it says training for war no more. And that's where we either do the trainings ourselves or we introduce and partner with other folks doing that work already in their community. Restorative justice, nonviolence training. Sometimes it's just nonviolence 101. People who give up their guns have a big now what question. So what do I do now? How do I defend my family? How do I feel safe? And these nonviolent stories, just telling those stories of how nonviolence works really helps people get into those tools to help access uh, other solutions, nonviolent solutions to conflict mediation. And that goes for conflict within ourselves too, because suicide is two-thirds of gun violence. So the last part is sitting under that vine and fig tree, being in fear of no other. We like to say that that means we're welcoming people with open arms instead of bearing arms. And we do that by victim support groups. So folks who have been through that trauma, how can we help them build resiliency to get back to um, functioning in society at a place where they want to be? But also recognizing that the fear that we have in our life doesn't get to make decisions for us and that we can keep leaning on the love to help uh, be a little vulnerable in that but also engage our community in a different way instead of locking our doors when people we don't know cross our streets. Uh, we kind of open that door and ask them what they need. So I want to show you a couple tools here. One of the first tools we made in Philly uh, was Shane was found by an abandoned gun that was in a, in a house that they redid. And uh, they went in there and they were redoing it and they just found it there, fully functional handgun. And we, we took it to, uh, to, this, to this event, we called it the Isaiah Forum, and we had mothers who had lost their kids to gun violence share. And it didn't happen this way, but, or it didn't plan to happen this way, but it was a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian all shared. And uh, Cherie Ryans was one mother who went up there, and after they shared, they each got a hit on the barrel of the gun. And when Miss Ryans took the, took the hammer, she, with every, with every blow on the gun barrel, she said, this is for my boy. And that's when we realized that it's not just metal that's getting transformed. That's when we realized that there is a lot more happening at that moment. So every event that we do ever since then, that's been about six years now, we invite people who have been affected by gun violence, not just people who have lost folks to hit on that barrel. A few, a few nights ago, we were um, at a place and a, a gentleman came up and he hit on the barrel 18 times, one year for, every, uh, for each year of the life of his victim. So he served 18 years in prison after he took the life of another teenager. And now he's a, a youth pastor in California. So there's, we've, had, we've had so many different people come to that anvil. I want to read some stats here just to kind of center us in the mess that we find ourselves in. We have 5% of the world's population, but almost half of the world's guns. We manufacture just under 9.5 million guns annually in the U.S. 
That's one gun every three seconds. There are nearly five times more gun dealers than McDonald's restaurants. In many places, like in North Philly, it's easier to get a, set, to, to get a gun than a salad. In 1979, gun deaths have not dropped below, since 1979, gun deaths have not dropped below 32,000. That means in 40 years, we've lost more than 1.2 million lives. Another way to say that is we've had more Americans killed by guns domestically in two decades, in the last two decades, than in the past 250 years of foreign wars. And in the last 50 years, we've had more gun deaths than all wars in American history, including the Civil War. When all murders of civilians in developed countries are tabulated, 86% occur in the US. Of all the children killed in 23 developed countries, 87% are in the US. We live in a country where the number of kids killed by guns since Sandy Hook surpasses the number of US soldiers killed since 9-11. One of my favorite things uh, when, we, when we travel is to go to uh, the AME churches. If you don't know about the African Methodist Episcopal Church, it was founded in a blacksmith shop and they have an anvil on their church logo. And when we have folks come to the anvil, they, the anvil is on their logo because it represents the strength of the church. And I think that's a great way to talk about this uh, gap. We have a gap here that we have, we're stuck between either it's a gun problem or a heart problem, and we need to say that it's both. And I feel like the church has a huge opportunity to stop. Yeah. I feel like faith communities have a huge opportunity to fill that gap and be able to say that it is both. And that when people come to the forge, it is folks who have been connected to offenders, it's folks who have been connected to victims, it's Republicans, it's Democrats. Gun violence does not discriminate. And so all those folks are coming to the forge and working together towards a common goal of ending gun violence, not just reducing gun violence. We have medical professionals who tell us that they can't classify the injuries that come in from gun wounds as accidents because there's something that we could have done about it. This other tool here is made from an AR-15. It's one of those guns that kill as many people as possible, as fast as possible, and that's what it's designed to do. This one was the last tool we made before we went on our tour, and it was made as a public demonstration for Senator Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. He's one of those folks who came out pretty strong after Sandy Hook and said never again, but then he's moved over to the thoughts and prayers. So we thought uh, we'd make a tool for him and then try and deliver it, uh, there was about four or 500 folks who marched um, down the streets of Philly to his office. He wasn't there, but uh, he didn't come or send a staff to get this, so we still have it. Um, they, we did a sit-in, and uh, about 30 or 40 folks got arrested in that, and that's why we still have this tool. But as they were getting arrested, the police said, we're with you, these are killing us too. And then <laughs> Shane likes to say, that's, well, then why are you arresting us? Um, but they were all released, so now charges were dropped, all that's cleared, so now they're planning a second delivery, actually, as we speak, that they'll be, they'll be working to see if they can encourage him a little bit more, just to do a, a ban on assault rifles. We're not talking anything uh, super there, just assault-style rifles, if they can put a ban on those. So I'm going to leave these kind of up here for us to see. When Sandy Hook happened, it's what brought gun violence into my world. The same amount of kids who were killed that day were also the same number of kids that were in my wife's first grade class. And that's when it felt like it got into my world and I, and I, I had to uh, move in, in with others to start raw tools. But it's the everyday shootings that we don't see. Kids ages 19 and younger are killed 10 times per day by guns. So that's every two to three days we have another Parkland, another Sandy Hook spread across the country. So with that, I wanna uh, bring up Jono and the Rainey family to talk about um, their experience as survivors of gun violence in North Philly.
Yeah, it's great to be here. My name is uh, John Olszewski. This is Christina Rainey, also goes by uh, the nickname Ma Quest. This is Christopher Rainey, goes by the nickname Quest. We're from Philadelphia, we came up today. These guys are, yeah, represent. Um, these guys are just pillars in their neighborhood. They've been running a hip hop studio out of their house for 20 years, just opening their doors to the community. They do a thing called Freestyle Friday. Anybody can come in, come into their home, jump on the mic, and um, just create. And so we, we crossed paths a while ago. So I was like, I've known Shane for a long time, you know, living in Philly. I've known these guys for a long time. It's been about 13 years. Uh, chance encounter, we're not gonna talk about the backstory too much, but we connected and we started a photo project. We did that for about a year and a half, and then we thought, hey, why don't we make a short little documentary? And so I met these guys, and also their kids too. They have a, a, a couple of kids. Their youngest uh, daughter, PJ, was six years old when we first met. And so she's kind of around, you know, during, you know, kind of filming. We were filming in the studio, filming them taking care of the kids. Um, and ultimately, we ended up filming for 10 years. That wasn't the plan. We made a film called Quest Together, a documentary about their lives. And we wanted to tell the true story of North Philadelphia from the point of view of the people that actually live there as a counterpoint to what the evening news does and helicopter storytellers that come in, grab a story, and run away. We wanted to tell a story in the community for the community. But about five years into filming, in June 2013, um, something happened that sort of changed all of our lives, you know, forever. Um, yeah, PJ, at this point, she was 13 years old. And why don't you guys take it from there? Right. Uh, our daughter, PJ, was 13 years old. Um, it was a beautiful sunny day, similar to like today. <clears throat> what happened, we uh, allowed her, she, she just got off punishment because she wasn't doing her chores or whatever. So we, you know, she was in the house for a couple of days. And uh, that day we decided, it was a beautiful Sunday morning. We decided, okay, let her go outside and have some fun, hang with the kids. And she went to the basketball court to play basketball with her friends around 3, 3 p.m., 3-ish, sometime around that time. PJ came, was on her way back home. And she was coming back early so she wouldn't come home late. Right. And my wife had just went to the store, so I was, I just, I was in the house. Uh, I just got finished helping my cousin. I just got off work. and So, um, well, I went in the house. I said, babe, I, th I think I just heard some shots because I seen a car shoot past me while I was coming out to the corner store. Um, I heard shots, went in the house. Babe, I didn't hear anything. I don't hear no cops now. Let me go see if everything's all right. I opened the doors. A young lady running towards me saying, PJ got shot. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know if I screamed, if I could get a word out. Right. I just ran as fast as I could. I ran so fast, I ran past my child. Right. We both left the house running together, just right out the door as soon as we got the word. We turned the corner, ran about a half a block. Uh, she ran past PJ. I happened to look out the corner of my eye and see PJ was standing over uh, about three houses in, into the next block with a, 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 another gentleman, another adult. And she had her face covered with a rag. So uh, I ran up to her. And asked her, was she okay? And she said, no, my eye. She kept saying, my eye, my eye. Okay. So he moved the, cover, I moved the, the cover, jacket off of her face. Jacket off her face and found out that PJ got struck in the you, eye with a bullet. You see the bullet literally enlarged in her face. Her eyelid closed right. over top of it. And she's 13 years old and short like a mother. No, no offense to short people, but she's small like a mother, you know. So, you know, just seeing that, you know, just, it's just like shocking. And the first thing PJ said was, Daddy, I'm sorry for getting shot. You know, so that, that really affected us. We, uh, we were wait, waiting for the police to come. You know, they, they didn't come. Well, uh, actually, by the grace of God, a police officer happened to be riding past because right. the police weren't actually called to the scene till 45 minutes after she got shot. Right. An ambulance or police didn't come till that long later. Right. So the cop that pulled up, he saw what happened. We told him what happened because he, he was like, what's the crowd for? He's trying to break the crowd up. So when I moved the blanket again to show PJ's eye, jacket to show PJ's eye, that's when he jumped through us in the car and he just drove us straight to the hospital. And, uh, you know, she, it, was a, it was a trying few minutes. Yeah, she, yeah. it was a Glock 9 bullet that traveled two blocks away. Yeah. Um, from, so when the police actually came, they went to the wrong spot. And, you know, but she lived, you know, she's 19 now. Right. She's alive. She's, she's very well. opinionated teenager. <laughs> then, right. You know, and, and the, the biggest blessing out of this is, uh, you know how you mark your child's height off? 
we had just marked her height on a door in our bedroom, and she grew about four inches in the past six months. Right. So that bullet would have hit her in her forehead, possibly. If she, if she didn't grow. Right. God is good. Right. You describe like her prognosis. Like, like what, yeah. So you had this interaction with the gun. What was, what was taken away from you? And could you describe even PJ's in, in injuries and sort of what she's had to deal with as a result of this, this gun and this bullet? All right. Anxiety is the biggest thing, first off. And she's, she's always, um, she's paranoid, but she tries not to be. You know, she's a lot more level-headed than you would expect a person of her age to be. And I think this trauma forced her to grow up, you know, uh, she, at first, every morning waking up, her equilibrium was off. Her head right. would be shaking like this. Right. Um, and we're trying to process this all at the same time, trying to be strong for her and not cry in front of her, you know, to, to keep her spirits up. I went to hand her an ink pen one day and say, this is the pen. She did like this. She couldn't see the pen directly. So small, little small things were affecting us. They were affecting her. You know, we, we all would have our moments where, you know, we just couldn't help but think this is all a bad dream. Um, in my neighborhood, the guys that, that I know, like, because I was inviting the guys from the neighborhood to come to our studio to get the, the bad guys off the corner. So we would let the bad guys come in our home. So they came in with the who did it, let's go get them type attitude. And I'm like, no, no, that's not going to solve anything. This is what we let y'all guys come here for so we don't get into that, you know, that same path that everybody locks us in or predicts that we're going to do. And, you know, it was pretty peaceful for the next couple of years in our neighborhood because of that. You know, because PJ is like the Ferris Bueller of our neighborhood, so to speak, sir. Everybody loves her. And, um, like, we're, it really changed a lot about us. Like, if they don't know our names, we're just PJ's parents. Right. <laughs> and I, I think uh, the hardest thing we had to deal with uh, out of everything is, uh, like, listening to PJ say how we don't understand. You know, and she constantly says that. Even to this day, out of everything, that's the most common uh, uh, question she'll say or, or comment she'll make to us. Like, you don't understand what I'm going through. And, you know, we want to tell her so bad, we do understand because we're living it with you, you know, but, you know, it's a hard thing to do sometimes. Yeah, so, so PJ lost her eye to this stray bullet and, you know, kind of had to go through the process of having, getting a prosthetic eye, and then that was really uncomfortable. And so if you saw PJ today, she wears an eye patch just because she feels more comfortable, um, you know, with that. And, and so there's a lot of loss involved, but also how did you guys heal from this trauma? What got you guys through? I think the togetherness, the family, the love, the neighborhood helped us get through it because the support was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Right. In our neighborhood, uh, well, all we did was tell everybody what happened. We're gonna, we wanted to throw our little gathering, and next thing you know, we had a block party going on. And, like 18 grills, everybody brought everything out, had the marching band, the whole nine. Her friends, like we didn't even know she had that many friends. Yeah. Like literally. Tell a story about the basketball. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the day she came home from the hospital, this little big guy begged me, could she come to the playground with him? I didn't want to say yes, but you know, we didn't want to be overbearing. So right. we allowed him to go and you know, the thing is when they came home, it was like the whole neighborhood walked her home. Right. Like, and that was I so, tried not to cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that is a, a, a touching thing to see, you know, your child, like, still stand strong and, and realize that she has so much support from her neighborhood. Because, believe me, I think it was more people that walked her home than it's in this room right now. So it was really, like, really powerful. And I, you know, I, I even teared up, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm the tough guy. I try to hold back the tears in front of the kids, but sometimes you just have to let them go, you know. And so we, so we made the, a film that for five years was about family daily routines. And when PJ got shot, you guys asked me, come to the hospital and bring your camera. Because we don't want, first of all, we want PJ to know how strong she is. And second, we don't want other families to have to go through what we're going through right now. Um, and I think that, yeah, we didn't set out to make a film about gun violence. Um, I think we made a film about love, family, hope, um, what do you want people to take away from your story? I want people to take away, well, I would like for people to feel the empathy that they need to feel in their heart when they meet somebody different. You know, I work at a shelter and we were taught that no two people came from down the same road, you know. I can't treat you 
like you lived in a mansion and got a million dollars your whole life because I have no idea what, what your life was like. So. Right. And um, I just, like, I would like people to understand, like, like, gun violence really is a terrible thing. And if we don't reach out and talk to our children, you know, and, and kind of try to get rid of that third parent. I don't know if you guys know who that third parent is. I'm going to tell you that Google is the third parent. Google, Instagram, YouTube. That's, that's those, those are the other parents that we have in our house that we don't even know their parents. You know, we need to shut them down and tell them to be quiet for a little while. You know, have some conversations with our kids for real. You know, and I, I think if we, you know, get back to that for a little while, even if it's one day a week, we can convince our children just to shut it off. You know, it, it, the conversations would be so much more enlightening and you would get so, uh, so much of a better understanding. And when my children don't listen to me and I realize they don't want to put their phones down, I start texting them. You know, I, hey, okay, you're going to read it this way, you know, okay. I know your Instagram, I'm going to put up on there, I'm going to put something on there that, you know, make you want to talk to me because I'm going to keep doing it. So it's ways to communicate with your children. We just have to find a better yeah, and we've, we've had conversations about this a lot. And, you know, one thing that happens is, you know, when there's a crisis, like the media comes in, the press comes in, everybody, you know, wants PJ to be a poster child for this, that, or the other thing. But we've talked a lot about what do, what do you guys want to have happen? What do you want to see happen? What does North Philly want to have happen? Um, and we've talked a little bit about, like, smart, you know, gun technology and, you know, needing a fingerprint to activate a gun. Or Do you guys want to comment on that, you know, briefly? Right. Like I was saying, uh, PJ and I were talking about not just the fingerprint on the gun, but when every gun is fired, that bullet leaves a, a mark on it, just like a fingerprint. So I don't think a gun should be sold without it being fired and the database, like, like the gun's bullet being put into a database so you can easily identify that gun, even if you don't have the gun. If you find the shell or take the slug out the person, you can identify it from whatever you have in the database and it'll be easier to go back to that gun you can find out faster if it's a straw purchase it you know so it solves some crimes a little bit faster it won't solve everything but i think it would help out a lot you know just some kind of database for you to register your gun in that, in that sense um <clears throat> kind of to piggyback off of what he said earlier about um social media you know a lot of our children don't understand the difference between real life and not. Some of us aren't taking the time to explain that. My grandson asked me yesterday about a video game. Is that real life, Grandma? No, baby, that's a game. It's not real. Some, our children don't understand that until we explain it. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know until somebody outright said it to me. And the same thing for our kids, trial and error. I mean, you may have to say it 10 times for it to sound like the first time. Maybe you got to say it 12 times. And they're the teachers. So when you don't know nothing about the, uh, Instagram and Facebook, ask them to tell you to you. <laughs> you know, some, they, they know a lot more than we do. Cool. So I think that's about our time. But I'd like to invite Lane Murdoch up with another really powerful story. Thank you guys so much. Um, I uh, got started with my activism when I was 15, um, and recently I turned 17. So to be completely candid with you, I'm used to maybe speaking to younger audiences. So <laughs> I'll try to make sense of what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, last April, um, I founded the National School Walkout. Um, and if you're not familiar with the walkouts, it was the idea that after the shooting at MSD, I wanted to see a national movement grow. And I'm very thankful that since then, we have seen March for Our Lives and other grassroots organizations really pop up across the nation. Um, but what the National School Walkout seeked to do was it wanted to have young people all over their schools on the same day and the same time walk out and create a little bit of civil disobedience against their attendance, but also to show that we are the ones being harmed by this. The politicians are technically safe in their offices. So we wanted to show we're the victims here and we're the ones that are being impacted by this problem. 
I live in Connecticut. I live in a town that's 20 minutes away from Sandy Hook. When I was little, I remember coming home and seeing my mother crying in front of the TV. I didn't fully understand what was happening at the time, but I do remember knowing that she was in pain and there was nothing I could do about that. That is a helpless feeling, and that is a feeling that is very, very common throughout my generation. We grew up having lockdown drills. We, were, we grew up being told to not go down streets, to stay in the corner and wait in the dark till the signal goes off that it's safe. This is an American problem. This is American society. Thank you. I wish, I wish I could tell you that when the shooting at MSD happened, I rushed to a friend and was in pain, but to tell the truth, I was absolutely desensitized. You see, in the time that I have been in high school, we have had the Pulse, Las Vegas, and MSC shootings, among the many other shootings that we do not hear about in the press every single day. So I went home, and I'm a very self-reflective person, and I said to myself, what can I do? How do I stop this feeling, this tragedy, this violence, from becoming normalized. And I went on change.org and I created a petition calling for these walkouts. I'm pretty sure if you go on there now, there's like grammar mistakes, maybe even some spelling mistakes. It was an instinctual decision. Um, <laughs> uh, and like I said, I was 15 at the time. Overnight, it went viral. And I had a lot of people asking me questions that I had not thought of the answers of. Like, what time? <laughs> um, you know, how long will we be out there? <laughs> um, and I quickly formed a committee of friends together, taught myself how to use Twitter because I actually didn't know how to use it. Um, and we had an activation on our hands. Thank you. Um, it, was, it was a lot. I had, thank you. I had about a month and a half to plan, something that I've never planned before, and I was very adamant on the fact that I wanted no parental help at all. Um, except maybe driving me places, but that was it. <laughs> um, and at the day of the walkout, we had hundreds and hundreds of schools walk out all across the nation and even globally. And I want to tell you that that day was somehow beautiful or wonderful, and it was in many ways. But something was very, very striking in my head. I became an activist because I chose to. I had the privilege to say, hey, I'm going to do this. So many of my fellow colleagues and activists are activists because it is an act of survival. It is something they've done since they were born. I come from a suburb. I did this with my community rallying behind me. That holds great privilege. So moving on, I got, turned 16, I'm now 17, and I've gone to speak to many young people. I've learned that there's an idea of intersectionality within activism that is very important to highlight. Something that I focused on a lot while doing the walkout. It was the idea that why I'm doing the walkout, I don't want to say, hey everybody, you have to protest here. You have to do it this way, it has to look like this. For me, I want it to be, you know what's best for your community, you know what's safe for you, your community, do that. Become leaders in your school, don't focus on me. And this idea of intersectionality is something my generation, I like to think, is quite good at. We're a diverse generation, we come from different economic backgrounds, different religions, different ethnicities. And we're one of the biggest generations in that regard. So, in terms of ideology, I wanted to create a movement, or at least be part of a movement, that wasn't just a bunch of white kids saying, hey, we're being hurt in schools, we should do something. I wanted it to be a multicultural movement that focused on the people that were actually being hurt in their streets every single day, whether the news cared or not. Um, thank you. Um, for me, there are a lot of adult allies that got me to where I am. Of course, my parents, but also wonderful activists around the world. And I kind of want to speak to you, since you are an older generation of people, of what you can do to help people like me. And all the wonderful activism you see online. And there's three things I have in mind. Number one, it's the idea that our generation is a tolerant generation. And because of that, we expect that same tolerance in return. 
We are a generation that believes and have been told that we are the future. But to get to that future, we need a wonderful understanding of who we are and the growing we have. Like I said, I was 15 when I started, so I've done a lot of growing since then while trying to run a movement. And understanding that when you're helping young people, they're going through a lot more than just gun violence. They're going through grades and friends and relationships. And understanding that we're not just your activist or your political leader, but fully-fledged human beings, I think is something that's really important to remember. Um, the second is the idea that young people don't just need your help. Sometimes we need you to grant us our freedom. We live in a time with helicopter parents. We live in a time where, you know, there's social media, there's everything telling us how to conform and how to be. Being a youth activist is one of the biggest differences between, I like to think, Gen Z generation and the millennial generation. Because of this, we're discovering who we are, and we need you to allow us to make mistakes, to let us come to you for help, but also understand that our activism isn't gonna look like your activism. It's gonna look like something entirely new and different, and that's exciting. Thank you. Um. A wonderful example I like to give, um, especially during my time at the walkout, of really letting young people be their own leaders was, in principle, the idea, as I mentioned, was for people to go out into their campuses or maybe a public park and hold these walkout events. But I got a call on my phone uh, from a young woman in Chicago who is uh, from a group called Chicago Fuerte. And she said, hey, we really want to participate in this, but where our school is located, we recently had some acts of gun violence, and we don't think it would be safe for us. What should I do? And I said, do what you feel is right. And she goes, I think it'd be good for us to stay in. And she goes, I actually have an idea. I go, what is your idea? And she says, we're going to have die-ins in the hallways. So that way we're safe, but we're also showing how unsafe we are at the same time. Um, that's a very important paradox to be mindful of. Um, and for me, that was genuinely her idea, and that's something that worked for her. One of my main tasks when talking to older people is we so often hear from politicians, it's important for us not to become politicians. Important for us to not tell our constituents what to do, how to act, how to feel, how to feel. And that's something social media is good at doing. So seeing young people, giving them that freedom, letting them become the people and the kind of activists they want to be is how we're going to get further to peace. Um, I think something we, you've probably heard a lot today and you often hear is, you know, an individual can make a difference. And I truly believe in that. But I think there's also something to be said for uniting with individuals that don't look like yourself. Uniting with people who don't agree with you on all topics. Because if you're doing your activism, if you're talking to people that agree with you on everything, you're just talking with a friend. Yeah. You're just... <laughs> You're just talking with someone that's convenient. Reaching out to people who disagree with you, who aren't 100% on all topics with you, is how we get change. So often we see the incompetence within politicians is because they're not willing to make or agree on a middle ground. Social media can do a lot of harm, but that's the one plus it does give, and it's the idea of public discourse. I truly believe, as adults, the number one thing you can do for young people is stick up for us in our journey of trying to communicate these big ideas. Like I said, I was 15 when I started. I didn't really know anything about real life, but I did know about the issues of impacting my generation. The cohesive relationship between my older allies who were telling me, hey, this is something that is affecting this group. The allies that are my age, that come from different communities saying, hey, that's a great idea, but you're overlooking this, this, and this. The willingness to change is what will bring us further. And that is something I do worry about with this generation. We're being held as these paragons of activism, of leadership, but we have so much to learn and we have so much to be. Because of that, and I want to finish with this, I want you all to realize that the perfect activist you may have in your life is going through a lot, and you have a lot to teach them, whether they want to admit it or not. Be there for them, teach them, and let them know that there is a life after this activism, and that they are not going to always finish or solve the problems they want, but they're simply passing the torch to the next generation. Thank you.
Everyone talks, everyone talks about following a hard act. This is the most inspiring young woman I've heard in a very long time. Thank you, Lane. Everyone, let's... We're going to come together. And also, thank you, Mr. Um, the strength that you show and... So we're going to take a... Handheld? Oh, sorry. Oh, but uh, as I started, I was saying thank you to Lane for the inspiration that she's provided um, and the guidance and the wisdom that you have in these 17 years and three days that you've been on the earth. Um, and, and also just want to, I'm going to take a moment and just recognize your mom. And thank you for bringing her and for being the advocate and the ally that she needs. But I will say that you stand on your own as your own person. We're grateful to recognize your leadership. And then again to Mr. and Mrs. Rainey, thank you for being here. And we're so grateful that your family's intact and we pray blessings upon you. So. Friends, each and every one of us is impacted by gun violence. Um, being a minister here, I, I think about it. When I'm sitting, we usually have chairs up here. When I'm sitting up here in worship on a Sunday and you can see the city walking by, I can't help but think that someone could come in this place. And I know we have security, but not everyone's blessed to have that. And sometimes, you know, things happen in spite of security. Um, if you're in a place of worship, a community, a, a home, a mall, a um, doctor's office, anything could happen. And so um, I think from these allies and friends and advocates, we've been inspired to, today in some way to take on our mantle and figure out what each one of us can do and what we can do together. And so I want to invite you into a time of questions uh, that you may have for, the, for this beautiful group of people. And we have runners here. Uh, I think Lila, do you have a question there? I, uh, Ruby has a question up front on the first row. Ms. Ruby Sales. Thank you very much for, your, um, for engaging in this important conversation with us. I just want to ask, how do you contextualize your conversation within a long systemic culture of violence that began with the doctrine of discovery that continued throughout enslavement, that this country is rooted in violence? It's not just individual violence, and it's what is the correlation between mass murders today in a tradition of genocide in this country? Um, thank you for that question. Um, you know, as I said, I'm a high school student, so I'm in history class right now. And th these are, no, this, these are the type of things that I actually find myself sometimes thinking about and daydreaming about in a way. Um, sorry, Mom, that's probably why my grades aren't that well. But um, I, I, I want to say, you know, this country was founded on violence. It was founded on the discrimination of another group. And if we look at you know, the history of violence, violence has a color, and the color is white. And I, I know that's a controversial opinion, but you have to look at the statistics, and you have to look at the incidences that have happened. And it's, it would be dumb to not think that, and to not look that in the face and realize that. As we move forward as a country, it does not help by ignoring that. It does not help by teaching our children that that is not true. It doesn't mean that it will always be that way, and it doesn't mean that we can't change. But we're not gonna change if we haven't realized the wrongs we've already committed. And America is notoriously bad at doing that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's you what I think. For okay, great, thank you. <laughs> any, other, any of the other speakers wanted to respond? 
what, one of the things we do is include things like the Sand Creek Massacre and other native massacres in the mass shootings. When we talk about, since Columbine, it needs to go back a lot further than that, and we have to root it in the killing of native peoples and African Americans as well. And, the, and that the first, uh, the first case of the Supreme Court that included the, the Second Amendment was to keep it out of people of color's hands, to keep guns. That was the gun control then. It was to keep it out of people of color's hands, including Native Americans. So um, that's slave patrols, that's doctrine of discovery. That the Second Amendment really enabled the doctrine, it gave the legal backing for doctrine of discovery to happen. Um, so there's, there's a lot of ways to root that. And to, one of that is to keep mass shootings included, go back all the way to, into the 1600s, 1500s, and beyond that. Lila, we have a question. Malika has a question up front. Another amazing young person in our congregation. Hi, so I'm a teenager myself, um, gang gang, <laughs> and um, I remember, so I'm 19, next month I'm turning 20, God, um, but I remember like the constant arguments that I would get in with my teachers and how often I would be publicly shamed in front of my classmates um, for arguing with them because they would say something that was misogynistic or they would say something transphobic or homophobic. I remember 2016, Trump was elected and one of my teachers had a cutout of Trump in his classroom and we, my, I grew up in New York City so the large amount of my uh, high school is POC and we had to walk by that all the time and he would wear his like MAGA hat and everything. Um, so I wanted to know how you yourself as someone, as a white woman with privilege, handle civil discourse in the classroom, because um, I'm sure that you were talking about um, ageism, and it's really hard as um, a young person speaking out um, against folk who automatically assume that they have all the answers or think that they know more than we do so I wanted to know how you handle civil discourse in class in the classroom how you use your privilege while also still protecting your like right as a 17 year old and like sanity right. yeah yeah thank you for that question um, I think you know you've proven that's something that we've all encountered in some way or form I think a big part of being a really good white ally is actually knowing when not to speak <laughs> um, and knowing when you know your support is needed not always just assuming someone wants it <laughs> Um, I, I think there's a lot of like white savior guilt going around right now, especially with my generation and like understanding how that works. I think in terms of dealing with uh, public school system, during the walkout I had a, I got like a crash course on how the bureaucracy of public school works. And um, I think with teachers, they're especially hard because they're in a position of power, but they're also dealing with teenagers that nowadays know their rights. So there's definitely a tension there. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing I, I've learned um, is in terms of speaking with teachers or teachers that are especially antagonistic, and I've had a couple, um, is understanding that in reminding them, at the end of their day, their job is to educate you. And their job is not to educate you on their opinion, but what the textbook says. And you know, we can get into whether textbooks are accurate or not, but at that time, it's what the textbook says and what the curriculum says. Um, and I think I had an encounter with a teacher who was like, you know, are you just doing this out of school? You're just encouraging kids to skip class. And I said, you know, kids miss out on school when they're being killed. Uh, kids miss out on school when their brothers and sisters are being killed. So, you know, if I can take this day to create a better culture of understanding, then I will. Especially I'll take this day out of your class that is constantly being antagonistic and constantly confronting me to have a day of positivity and learning among my peers. Um, so I think it's really about keeping calm because it's easier, sadly, to look down on someone if they're passionate. And it's you know, looking at your peers and saying, do you feel the way I feel? Okay, let's do something about it because there's power in numbers. How do you inspire adults to do the same thing? Because I feel like there are a lot of us who are in communities, in our workplaces, in our faith communities, at family dinners, and we don't take the same, um, take the same opportunity. Right. And not, not to put you on the spot around that, but Fine. it feels like you're embodying something in your generation that maybe a lot of us in the room haven't necessarily embraced yeah. yet. Um, I think it's baby steps. 
Um, and much as I, my mother can attest to this, I'm a very passionate person, but I think it's you know, choosing your battles. Um, I think you know, a lot of times if you can tell a person is just gonna wanna you know, fight for fighting's sake, you might not wanna take that on, but if there's an opportunity for understanding, you know, if there's a door peeked open for a kind of a, a gray zone of conversation, I say take it, and I think it's big thing that I've learned is relating it back to them. So some people, don't care about statistics. That doesn't impact them. But talking to them about their kids or how it's gonna affect their business or how it's gonna affect their schooling, make it personal because humans are neatly narcissistic and we like to think about ourselves. Um, but some people are different. Some people want facts. You know? Some people wanna hear those different statistics and different things. So I think it's really having an individualistic understanding of the other person. Thank you. Yeah. I want to take uh, a question that would relate to this side of the panel right now to Mr. and Mrs. Rainey. If your hand is up, yeah, let's go with Paul. Hey, I'm Paul Devlin. Um, we heard earlier a story about men, good-looking, strong, strapping black men going out, having a house full of love, but going out into the streets and facing racism and white supremacy and the struggles of that and coming back into your home and just sharing love instead of hate. And I'd like to hear your stories about how you managed to make that happen because you had an incident occur that ripped your family apart or could have ripped your family apart and you reacted with love and against repeating the violence. And you specifically mentioned that people wanted to retaliate for you and you said no. So if you could share a little bit more about that, I'd appreciate that. Um, okay, well, as a youth, I'm about to tell my age here, but as a youth uh, in my neighborhood, uh, uh, the gentleman that I looked up to was coming home from the Vietnam War. You know, those were the guys that, you know, stand around the cans and doo-wop, things like that, you know. And uh, it really wasn't about race, it was more like about culture and like what, what, what do we need to be better people for ourselves. And in our neighborhood, that's, you know, the 70s, the late 70s, early 70s, that's a lot of that was going on. It was self-pride and we were feeling good about ourselves. Then all of a sudden, you know, these men started getting locked up for frivolous reasons and separated from their homes. And uh, the, I think the, the crack epidemic started in my, our part of town, you know, back in the 80s. And things kind of went haywire. And by me not having a father in my, my home, I didn't have a father. My father, uh, like, kind of left me when I was two. He went to go get the bread and never came back, you know. Uh, so it was just me, my brother, my mother, and my other brother. So we kind of, like, was their father figures to each other. And... Uh, and our biggest idols were these men coming home from wars because they would talk to us and they would say, hey, you got to do better in life and, you know, you can be better in life. And, you know, uh, and they would tell about their stories and their friends and who they were and what type of people they were. It was, you know, it was so many different stories that came out. I don't even remember, I haven't even feel like race played a role in my upbringing, you know, as far as bringing, like talking to my children about life, you know, because, um, we always, that was, our, our biggest thing was unity in the neighborhood itself, just trying to keep our neighborhood together and uh, trying to understand what was going on and try to stick to the root of the problem as a whole. And we would talk to each other growing up and like other families would do the same thing. Um, you don't see too much of that anymore because like now these, these epidemics are, you know, drugs have gotten stronger and, you know, neighborhoods have gotten, uh, what do you call that? Uh, Gentrified, yeah, definitely gentrified. So, you know, and when they when they gentrify a neighborhood, it's not because of another race is moving in. I think more or less, it's the poverty level that's in that neighborhood versus the uh, upper class that wants that neighborhood. You know, that's what separates the line. You know, um, and I think that's where we have a problem at now. Like, let's just trying to control the neighborhood. Uh, even when, and, and as far as when the gentleman said that they wanted to retaliate for me or, or us, it was more or less like, come on guys, we've been, all been down that road. You know, I, I, was, I played a bad guy one time in my life too. I wasn't this peaches and cream guy you see here now with, you know, with the, <laughs> you know, so I, I really didn't want them to follow the path that I followed at first until, you know, until somebody spoke to me, I was just as wild and rowdy as everyone else. And my wife and I, we just wanted better for our children. So we decided to get some equipment. You know, we both were into music. We grabbed a couple of microphones and a cassette deck. You know, back then, anybody know what a cassette deck still is? You know, and uh, just recorded the kids, you know, and let them hear themselves. And um, 
they got better and, you know, they started feeling more empowered about themselves. We started talking to them. Then next thing you know, somebody would need help with a, a resume. We would sit down and help them with a resume. Next thing you know, we kind of came like, became like the little community neighborhood center at our home, you know, for the, for the youth. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Yeah. And we, we still do our Freestyle Fridays to this day. Actually, we had one yesterday. But uh, now we do it even better because now we have a sponsor, Temple University College in Philadelphia. They let us do our Freestyle Fridays on their property now. Yeah. So, you know, I, I hope that answered your question because I, I tend to ramble. <laughs> um, uh, I had odd incidents where it comes down to race here and there. Like growing up, though, my mom's best friend, she's white, Miss Kathy, and she's not like my favorite person, but I grew up with her children. So her children are like my siblings. And the sad thing is growing up is when I found out about racism, when my mom, Miss Kathy asked my mother to take her to see her own parents. Well, my mom had to drop Miss Kathy off around the corner from her house because if Miss Kathy's front parents seen that she was associating with a black person, they would disown her. When she was a child, she said there was a, a black family moving in down the block. Her father made their whole family pack their stuff. They moved because he didn't want to tolerate that. But her kids aren't like her parents. She's not like her parents. You know, I've I've been raised to understand that we are what we decide to be at some point, because you never know exactly when that point is. And you could be decide to be a bad person, a good person, a straight person, a gay person. I met a little boy in my color, and he said, I'm Puerto Rican. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was a decision that he, we made. And at some point, growing up, I, I learned who I didn't want to be like. I didn't want to be like Miss Kathy's parents. I didn't want to be like some of the friends that Miss Kathy's kids grew up with because I realized that they didn't really like me. But this is, is, it was hard on her family also growing up in a black neighborhood because her daughter wanted to just be friends with everybody. And she got teased horribly. They were the only white family in the whole neighborhood. Megan didn't fight a lot, but she had to defend herself a lot. Verbally, um, she, she's not violent, so I can't say she actually fought back. But she's a good person. And she's my sister, and she got blonde hair and blue eyes, and I don't care. <laughs> oh, we, have we have a question from yeah. Lane. Lane, where is the energy for the gun protest movement now? Do you feel like it is still there? Wonderful question. Um, I get that a lot. People are always wondering, they're like, oh, we're doing another protest, what's happening? Because, you know, we had three major protests last year. I think it's still here as like, loud as energized as it was before. The only difference is, I feel like a lot of young people, their first time being advocates was during that time. And we do have school, and we do have like, things we need to do. Um, so I know for me personally, because I can only speak to my experience, you know, I've been taking this time to speak to people, to educate myself on some of the really important um, nuances of gun control laws, but also the people affected by it. So it's. I, and I've spoken to other advocates, and it's honestly right now is a time of educating ourselves. So when we come back for the 2020 elections, we come back in full force. So I, I think, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so uh, I think it's here, in a, it's still here. It just isn't visible to the national news because we all know how that goes. We have a question up front. Yeah, my name is Dwight. I want to thank everybody. Um, uh, there was a, a statistic, and you, you were mentioning, Lane, uh, that some people pay attention to that. You had said something that stunned me at the very beginning of your speech, with your talk, which was that, if I heard it correctly, two-thirds of deaths by guns are suicide. And I had a hard time focusing in after that, because it really slapped me. Um, and then while this program was un un unveiling itself, I remembered very recently the parent of, I think it was a Newtown child. Yes. C 
committed suicide. And a new I mean, and a Parkland survivor. And, that's right. There were two. And then uh, recently, um, I was talking to a, a veteran who he, I live on Long Island. He organizes a lot of vets, and he was talking about uh, the second wave of deaths. The first is deployed people who are dying overseas, and then the second wave of those deaths is the incredibly high incidence of suicide amongst soldiers who survive that to come home and, and take their own life. And I'm thinking about, um, pardon me here, uh, raw tools. And what I loved about it was I was seeing transformation. I was led to that by you, I assume, transformation. How do you, mass shootings, uh, bump stocks, I get that. How do you preach, teach, speak transformation of guns like that? And, or do you, since you brought the statistic up, when dealing with such a high percentage of gun deaths being uh, related to suicide? And maybe, Mike, before you answer that question, Jackie, do you want to bring the piece of transform, the tool of transformation up right now? Yeah. That's right. So just, just an explanation of what this is. Um, it's a, we call it a MATIC, M-A-T-T-O-C-K. And so that means we went from semi-automatic to MATIC. Woo! Yeah. So we have a, a hoe on one side and a fork on the other. We like to call that a plow and pruning hooks on either side of there. Um, one of the things we also put at the bottom is an olive branch. It's not on there yet. But that olive branch is just like the dove brought it back to Noah in the flood, that the flood would never again happen. It's the same you grip this to say that this garden will never again take a life because it's been transformed into a garden tool. Um, the last time Mike was here, he made one for us. Yeah. And we gave it to our local police, community policeman, um, Jaime Hernandez, who keeps us safe and stands on the wall so that we can take care of are working here. And Shane and Mike are giving me the honor to present this to Lane. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, back to your question of transformation. So I live in Colorado Springs, which is home to the Air Force Academy, Schriever, Peterson, NORAD, and Fort Carson. Um, there's actually more veterans die from suicide after they've been deployed than they do in deployment. Um, my county, El Paso County, passed um, the Second Amendment Sanctuary County because red flag laws are being approved for high-risk people who pose a threat to themselves or others. Um, that means that law enforcement could remove a gun from that home or any firearm until they prove that they're, they're over whatever that risk is. Um, and before that even became a law, our county passed uh, that it would be a Second Amendment sanctuary. It's more concerned about guns than it is about immigrants coming in from seeking asylum, is basically what they're saying. Um, so there's a systemic transformation that has to happen. I lost my mom to suicide 10 years ago and it wasn't by a gun, but when the ambulance got to the driveway, they had to wait 10 minutes or so for the sheriff to clear the home of guns because it was a mental health related. And at some point, a first responder was injured by someone with a gun and they put in this safe practice. It's, it's a good rule for them to have. We lived in a rural area and it probably didn't make any difference, but at some point, someone had to make a systemic change to, to keep first responders safe. But now we've come to a point, this doesn't just happen in rural America where, where I'm at, it also happens on, in North Philly when an ambulance gets there and it's a, it's a neglecting neighborhood and they have to wait for the sheriff to, to clear the home as well. So it happens uh, in rural places, but it also happens where uh, neglected, poor um, places of color that, that police just don't, aren't there and they aren't there to help the first responders do their job. So there's transformation that has to happen systemically, um, but there's also that transformation of the heart that happens when we invite uh, those affected by gun violence to hit on the gun barrel out there and they let go of that grief. When Miss Ryans did it that first time in, in Philadelphia five years ago, she, she, 
she finished it with this is for my son and she just kept hitting and we can only hit on a gun barrel when it's red hot when it gets back to cool we have to put it back in or it begins to crack but she kept she kept going and this is 20 years after she lost her son and when she finished the the hammer almost pulled her to the ground so there's tons of grief and for me the biggest transformation is that uh, women and people of color are carrying way too much weight in pushing this transformation and that it has to yeah <clears throat> Everywhere we go, overwhelmingly, it's women and people of color who are telling their story, starting organizations. Moms Demand Action is, is a good example of that. Lane's a good example of that, that are um, just pulling way too much weight than, than what victims should have to pull on top of the weight of the trauma that they're going through. The, their communities, we all need to be lifting those people up to help them with their trauma. And then we also need to be uh, disarming our hearts and our streets. There's, there's triggers in our streets and there's triggers in our hearts and we have to deal with both. Um, can I speak to that real quickly? Yeah, I'm speaking a lot, sorry. Um, but I, so you touched on something very important that I, I don't think the media often talks about or not enough, um, is you know there are high rates of suicide amongst young males in our country. And I think that's something that, you know, and there's high um, rates of suicide amongst my generation in general, due to social media and things like that. But I, I do think, you know, violence and, and suicide, um, you know, we have not allowed our boys, our men, um, to feel comfortable with their emotions, especially our troops. And, you know, I, I personally, I'm, I'm a feminist, and I do believe there's a lot of work to do, you know, when it comes to equality, but, you know, feminism includes the mental health of men, and I don't think people talk about that enough. And it includes our troops. So I, I think, you know, in the gun violence sphere, at least from my experience, that's something that's highly overlooked, partly because it is a complex issue, um, and it's hard when two communities that you know, are facing this kind of violence but maybe look different or have different socioeconomic um, standards. Um, I think it's hard to deal with that, but I, I think it's an important issue to, t uh, to touch on and also to remember as parents, as brothers, sisters, to be you know, kind to the young men in your life. <laughs> Everyone, thank you. John, uh, so, sorry, Mike and Lane. <laughs> Okay, what, this is the last question, please, thank you. For the Rainies, it kind of relates to a question I asked in the last session about music. I'm curious about the message in the music with some of the young people. I'm sure at some point, some of the young people get into raps that glorify violence, and how do you reconcile that with the need to preach peace? Well, quite often, that's like 90% of what they do at the studio is like, they, they come out with what they hear on the streets and what they're, they're you know, what they visualize, what they want to be, because that's what the record companies sell. Like, I, I believe a young lady was speaking earlier today about the same situation, about what, to, you know, what they sell. And um, we're just a small entity that tries to get our children to understand, like, hey, how about you rap about how to do your taxes? You know? <laughs> How about you rap about how to hold on to your house, do your mortgage, things like that. You know, we give them like weird challenges just to have, you know, play with them. 90% of the time we don't get that back, but that small percentage that we do get back, you know, it's, it's a start. You know, now they, they're understanding something because they don't teach these things in school at a young age, you know. And most of the kids are under peer pressure, you know. If you, if you don't have on the latest gear or the latest uh, belts or whatever, you know, that's, you know, you're not rapping about anything if you're not... If it you know, doesn't involve watching somebody get hurt, you know, it doesn't mean anything to them. Um, but in some senses, rap was, was based on people's hard lives. And the media took advantage of that and turned it into something totally different where if you're not rapping about that, you're not real. So a lot of the kids that's, that's been coming to my studio lately has been rapping about what they've really been doing going to school, trying to get their GED. I just scored 40 points in the basketball game, la, la, la. You know, those are the kids that, are, that we try to focus on. Um, our intent really is not trying to change them because like, we're not their parents, so the more we try to change, the more we're gonna chase them away. But we just try to curve them a little bit, so to speak, you know, try to you know, get, them, get them on the path that they should be on a little bit, you know, little hints and drops like, hey guys, a show's coming up, and if you can give me a couple songs that don't have any cursing in it, you know, that you can play on the radio, and I don't mean Power 90 such and such radio, I mean like, like some easy listening radio or something. You know, we'd be like that with the kids, and like, we'll get it. You know, they, they come up with these songs, and we just look for places for them to try to, you know, 
perform or whatever. Like Temple University gave us uh, their space, and the first thing they was worried about was the same thing you just said. Are they going to come in here and just tear the, tear the place up and nobody's going to want to hear what they're saying? Nope. When they come there, it's like, okay, first day, everybody's rapping violently. Second day, that same rap, I want to hear a clean version. Third day, now we're going to work on, let's try to uh, record you, because now, actually Tuesday, I'm, uh, we, we picked three kids that, were, that, were, that was doing the exact thing, and we're going to record them, and hopefully we can get them to open up for some act that's coming to Philadelphia to visit. So, that, you know, that's our goals. Well, today's music is, is kind of hard for me to really like because there's not a lot of good messages. I respect the positive messages, but at the same time, I can't really knock some of these messages they got because my generation wasn't but so much better. You know, we had NWA and stuff, and I thought about it. I wouldn't let my kids listen to them neither. But um, <laughs> a lot of the music today are, is, is changing their mindsets of what we would like them to think about. And... I don't know how to change that except for to pray on it. You know, pray that our kids get smarter, their minds open up a little more, and pray that the influences upon them are more positive because they're teaching each other. And so we got to teach the ones that's teaching them because who's teaching? <sighs> this is why I got my tubes tied. <laughs> <laughs> Prayer. Prayer is the most important thing. I have no idea how to fix it. Leave but with that. Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> on, and on that note, well, uh, I think what we're really envisioning is a new way of being the kingdom of God, a new way of experiencing the reign of God, where where we turn tools of violence into tools of you know t turning the earth so that something new may grow forth. And thank you, John and Mr. and Mrs. Rainey and Lane and Mike uh, for offering your time to us and also for inspiring us with this message. So thank you. Two messages for lunch.